Andy, my dude, have you heard of the magical website builder known as Squarespace? Ugh, not another Squarespace ad. I feel like every podcast is sponsored by them. <laughs> hey, 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 don't knock it till you try it. Yes, okay, it is overhyped. But actually, it lives up to the hype. Squarespace is like a website fairy godmother. With a click of a button, your site transforms into a beautiful masterpiece. A website fairy godmother? That sounds interesting. What makes it so magical? Well, for starters, those slick templates make anyone look like a professional web designer. Pick one, customize the colors and fonts to match your brand, and voila. Plus, the drag-and-drop fluid engine is so easy, your grandma could build a site on Squarespace. Well, she did knit me a lovely scarf last Christmas. Maybe website design is next. Exactly. And when you're ready to sell your Nana's handmade scarves online, Squarespace has built-in e-commerce. Add a store with one click. Get flexible payment options. Then watch those sales roll in. And when she wants to teach others her steezy scarf skills, Squarespace's new courses feature is just the ticket. Nana can set up her curriculum and enrollments and payments in a snap and become the next e-knitting influencer. Wow, you really sold me with the grandma angle. Sign me up for that free try. Just go to thenextreel.com slash Squarespace and transform your site into a beautiful Squarespace masterpiece. Well, thanks, Pete. Even though it's overhyped, Squarespace actually sounds perfect for Nana's site's needs. Appreciate the warning on the ads, though. I'll brace myself next time I listen to a podcast. Anytime. Let me know if you need any help getting that site up and running. Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to support our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Miriam's scared of the water. I don't know how she's going to date a guy in the Coast God. You know, we all get scared out there. I'm not afraid of the water, Bernie. It scares me at night, that's all. You can't see what's underneath. Just more water.
This is the Next Reels Film Board on Rashpixel.fm, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and the Gang of Thugs is once again gathered to spoil a brand new film currently in theaters. This month on the show, we're taking on the latest Disney spectacle, Craig Gillespie's Rescue at Sea, The Finest Hours. Gather around the pier, we have Andy Nelson. Ahoy. And the handsome Tommy Handsome. Aye, aye, Pete. Justin J.J. Yeager. I'm in the Coast Guard in Hollywood. I know I'm going to hate all of you guys. And Steve Sarmento. Film overboard. <laughs> grief. Before we get into all of that, you, you've got to learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show on iTunes or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. Don't forget, Next Reel's Instagram, hashtag PonyPrize, hashtag Guess the Movie Challenge. New contests start every Monday over on Instagram with your host, our uh, games master, Stephen Smart. Okay, here we go. The Finest Hours, gentlemen. The premise is the Coast Guard makes a daring rescue attempt off the coast of Cape Cod after a pair of oil tankers are destroyed during the blizzard of 1952. It is based on a true story. And uh, let's uh, let's kick it off here, uh, Steve, with your opening statement, sir. Oh, okay. Um, wow, where to start with this one? I, I think my biggest struggle with this is, as we talked about with Everest, is that balance between telling a compelling dramatic story with being faithful to actual historical events? And I think this film tried to juggle that and ended up, ended up somewhere stranded in the middle. The, the film was a roller coaster for me and in a really weird way. I was kind of dreading going to it. I, I didn't really know a whole lot uh, beforehand. It didn't know it was Disney. Didn't know, uh, thought it was just going to kind of be, you know, a perfect storm drama thing as I was going. And then I really enjoyed the buildup. I thought they did a great job of kind of making it dramatic and light as it went. And then there was this kind of tipping point where I felt like I was in a really small boat and was getting pitched over, end over end. And all of the drama became such. So many Hollywood tricks that I got started getting angry and laughing at myself and at the movie. So uh, there's a, there's a lot of things I like, uh, but um, but in 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 general, it, it fell flat for me. I think for for a lot of people who see a lot of movies, it's going to be a little frustrating for that point. I can see what you guys are saying about it, um, and maybe it's just that this sort of film I can fall into. Um, really easily. I know that the Hollywood tricks are there. I know the tropes that they're they're pulling. Um, but I enjoy the characters. I enjoy the way they construct the story. I actually had a good time going back and forth between the two different uh, parties, and I, uh, I I really connected with them, and I enjoyed the rescue. So I I was along for the ride on this one. It's an incredible story, and I guess I personally believe that it, it deserved a more nuanced film. Uh, I guess what I learned is that I, I like what they were. No, I saw what they were going for. And I guess I like the idea of an old fashioned sort of melodramatic movie better than it is in reality. And while it had some thrilling moments, ultimately sort of that, um, what would you call it? That greatest generation earnestness and the dialogue and the often uh, there were many, many cardboard characters. It just had me rolling my, my eyes way too much. And there was a lot of unintentional laughter. Oh, such a shame! All of Sorry, that, America. Be- really, I think you have you sir have done the Coast Guard a great disservice today. 
It's exactly right. This is on you. I actually quite enjoyed this film. I had a rollicking good time uh, insofar as uh, I, I loved the... Um, uh, I love the rescue. I like the water stuff. And, and I should say, I hate the ocean. Like, just in general. And I live kind of coastal, and we go to the coast all the time. I don't swim in it. I really don't like the boats. Uh, I, I don't like anything about it. But movies about the ocean, and particularly disasters at sea, I'm thinking maybe it's because I have this sort of sea. You, you see, you should have listened to me vibe going on when I see these things. But uh, I really in, enjoyed the the ride that this film took me on. I actually enjoyed the CGI of it. I enjoyed the boats of it. But I, I think it was led by two um, really strong performances for me uh, in uh, Chris Pine and Casey Affleck. I think they, as leaders of their tribes, uh, dramatically, I think they did a great job. And I can't wait to hear what you guys think about the rest of the cast. But let's start with the script. There's been some contention uh, around what this you know, about uh, how they approached this story is a true story. It's based on the book by Casey Sherman and Michael. I should have looked this up to to Gaius. What are you, I'm going to go with two Gaius. Mm-hmm. Uh, the script is written by Scott Silver, Paul Tomasi, 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 and Eric Johnson. I prefer Eric Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> I think <laughs> yes. <laughs> what do we think? Uh, what do we think of of the script here, uh, Steve? Why don't you kick us off with your, with your your thoughts on on this big question? Why are we telling Bernie's story? And that's that's my biggest issue with this. Is we have a film that's really focused on Bernie we, we start with him but we have really three different stories that are going on because we've we've got we've got Bernie and then once he leaves and goes out we still have um, the story back home with what's going on there with his uh, fiance and then we also have the guys on the boat and it, the, the balance between those to me worked really well between Sticking with Bernie and the guys on the boat, what was going on with, um, I believe it's Miriam, his fiance back there. I just really didn't know what, other than creating tension of she's worried about him, I didn't really get a whole lot from her story, what she learned. And I think a lot of that is tied up in my issues that I have with all this backstory that's that's hinted at. And there's, there's little lines here and there that there was something that happened in the past last year. Bernie had gone out and a bunch of fishermen had died and one of the guy's brothers is there and, and somehow... Um, Ben Foster's character, uh, Livesy, he's grumpy or bitter about that, but nobody really talks about it much, but it seems to be something that everybody there back in town is still dealing with. And that was really problematic for me because I thought, well, how is this impacting this? Is this really why Bernie's making these decisions the way he is? I didn't have enough about that, so I thought... You're giving me not enough, so either get rid of this or give me more of that. But everything between Bernie and his guys going out and all the guys that are left stranded on the half of the tanker that's there, I thought worked really, really well. I actually really enjoyed what happened on the tanker the most. I thought there was some really good pieces there with the characters and the tension there that that worked really well for me. And those were the parts I really enjoyed the most out of this whole thing. I wanted more of Casey Affleck's character. I thought he had an interesting story and I wanted to know more about him and I thought his performance was really strong and I was more invested in him with Bernie. I just, he to me, he came off as just not a very deep guy 
and I just really didn't get into him that much. It just seemed like we can get into the characters a little bit more, but his, his to me, his story, there wasn't much to it. There wasn't a lot of action, you know, intentional things that he did that I saw as, here's a hero, it's just a guy that got lucky, versus what I saw out on the boat was, here's some guys sort of making their own luck and, and fighting against forces of nature and trying to outwit it and, and keep keep afloat so they can get rescued versus four guys going out about that sort of just dumb luck happened to get there. And that was my, my biggest problem with that. I think that's a little dismissive of, of Bernie's story to just, uh, you know, say it's all luck. I mean, we see... Yeah, we see, I mean, I think he's an incredibly strong character, and I really enjoyed watching him, and I really enjoyed the way Chris Pine played him. I thought Chris was great in this role. It's He's a very um, kind of mild-mannered sort of guy, and I liked that he's this guy who has this quiet presence who, you know, he's scared to go out and do this thing, but he feels he has to, and he does, and, and he succeeds. And, it, I mean, he, he has he talks about luck several times, but I don't think that... You could say that it's luck that he does this, but you see these moments where he's, I don't know if he's praying or whatever, but he's just like, it's almost like he's trying to get into the groove and sure there may be some luck involved, but he's also clearly very skillful the way that he negotiates the waves as he's going across the bar, which, you know, I thought that was a fantastic and very compelling sequence and it showed just the strength that this guy had. Now, sure, coming across the boat, I think that is, is a relatively lucky moment that, you know, it actually happened. You can't... You can't fault the character of Bernie for that, but I think Bernie himself, as a character, ends up ends up creating this guy who who is just shows commitment and shows that he's going to do this, and he knows that it could lead to his death, but he's willing to try and he's going to give it his all. I, I found him very compelling. I think this is a story of quiet heroes, and that's one of the things that I think is most exciting about it. It's about these guys who uh, they're not they're not going out to intentionally uh, do you know heroic things. They're doing things because they have uh, an internal drive to uh, to do what is right to do good for the sake of humanity and and this I think is true for both Casey Affleck's character and and uh, Chris Pine that um, in both of these stories we have guys who are uncommonly skilled and well trained at what they do and so they are able to fall into these situations and do apparently heroic things but it has nothing to do with them just getting lucky to survive it has everything to do with them being appropriately trained and prepared to take on the job that needed to be done at the time it needed to, they needed to do it and if you go to what you're talking about, Pete, there, and you talk about skill. I think that uh, that we talked about those three separate parts of the story that are being told. We've got the the home front, we've got Bernie's group, and we've got uh, Casey Affleck's group. And there's really kind of three story arcs that are going in there that are a part of that skill. It's ability or capability, it's blame, and then it's luck, right? We've got these three things, and they all kind of meet up in the script because you've got these people who are... Uh, ultimately capable at this simple function and they're linked by some measure of luck and they're there's there's constant questions throughout the script of blame and who accepts blame and who's responsible for these terrible situations where you know ultimately it's an act of god it's weather that's that's causing this this difficult thing but through manipulation of their uh, again ultimate skills and their their acceptance of responsibility they sort of use luck to be able to find this really momentous and special 
event that happened in the end. I'm actually uh, uh, very positive about the way that that happened in the script. My problem with the script is how some of the the tiny pieces uh, are used to push us towards those more the the larger themes throughout uh, the the story. And and the initial thing that we asked here was why tell Bernie's story? Well, if we look at really some of the information that's out there, it seems like some of what Bernie's story why Bernie's story is so pivotal pivotal in this is not just because he was the captain of the small boat, but because there's the fiction element of the love story, and we're we're bringing that in, and we're we're making that a a key point of the story, um, and to go back to Everest and to bring in the idea of let's create a story that's not a hundred percent accurate to make it more dramatic. I don't agree with the way they chose to go with it. I don't think they needed to make it uh, a, a uh, engagement as opposed to a marriage. I think, I think they could have done things pulling out Miriam's character and changing that a little bit, but, but in general, I, I'm happy they picked a direction. Uh, I just didn't like the direction they went with it. I think that's a that's a really interesting point, and that really is the biggest sort of fictitious part of the narrative. And generally, the consensus is that the film really does tell a pretty darn good job of the the rescue itself. And there are pieces of it that were changed, but but Miriam's storyline in this film, and so far as she is actually Bernie's, uh, you know, wife. Uh, in the story, in the movie, she was not the wife at the time, and they had this engagement, and they had the drama of her, you know, barging in, and and that didn't happen. In fact, according to uh, the book, originally, uh, Miriam and Bernie had been married for a year and a half at the time that this happened, and she was at home in front of the fire with the flu for the duration of the event. She didn't. She was not up to speed on what was going on um, out. In the, is that is that the collective understanding here? Did I miss anything? I think it it gives me a sense that, uh, and, and I like the Miriam character. I, I think that it's nice to see a character like a female character like this, and that's exactly why I think they wrote the script this way to have a a a female character, a strong female character in an otherwise male story, because otherwise you're really not going to have many women in the story. And that's just you know it's it's Hollywood you know screenwriting it's the business side of it you know get the get a woman in here, and I'm really glad that it was a woman that I actually felt more interested to watch than so many Hollywood wives. I think the problem that I have with it, Andy, and I think this is probably the only problem I have with it is, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, JJ. It's it's this idea that they there was probably a story in her anyway without her necessarily being like a completely fictitious party to the rescue right the rescue was already exciting enough and and we probably could have done something i mean i i don't know and this is is maybe a question would have been would it have been better to make her not sick but his wife uh already in the sequence than to do what they did with making it an engagement i don't know does that make it better in terms of the storytelling well i don't know i just feel like the the really intense parts of miriam's story that the and Ultimately, if we if we look at what we know now about the background, the the really intense parts of her story, the drama that was all inserted, and it starts to feel like those were some of my least favorite scenes in the film. Um, you know, her without a coat, crashing into a a drift in the middle of nowhere to stage a scene where she can have a conversation with the person that blames Bernie. And you know, and then ultimately unravel blame, or the, the really the beginning of the end for me, in, in sort of my my tryst with the film altogether, was when she has the huge dramatic scene with Clough, asking him to call him back, call him back, call him back. If you cut the music out of that scene, there is no 
emotion there other than her repeating the same line over and over again and doing it with a terrible accent. But um, to go back to what you were saying, Pete, I'm sorry to derail there a little bit, but the point is I think you're you're right. I think she has drama there. Or you consider the other sort of, I don't want to call her the other woman in the script, but the the wife of the the sailor that was lost the year before. I, I loved that actress's performance and there could have been some real drama there to talk about. So again, it was a choice, um, a choice that they put in there. But I think that what they, the fictionalized things, turned out to be kind of the thinnest parts of the film for me. That is interesting. What you know, in terms of the 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 rest of the work by our our friends uh, Scott, Paul, and Eric, uh, do you feel like that in, in general the 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 narrative itself leading up to the big rescue i mean was it was it paced right for you i mean did it did it feel like it 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 uh, ended up you take miriam out of the picture did it did it make a, a compelling action adventure i think it works I, I i think it works without her um but like i said i i appreciate the addition of her my issue with the the change of you you make her the fiance so you make that decision to do that and knowing that i thought to to what end and the thing that to me was the crux of it that kept coming back to was that the Bernie is he's this guy that is just fixated on regulations. And to me, that's the only thing that I got from what what is the difference between her being the fiance versus the wife is, well, it's his fiance. And so he's got to go ask permission to get married because that's in the regulations. And, and later on, it almost seems like this sort of last sort of like lighthearted joke at the end, like, oh, it's just a formality, not a regulation. I got to learn the difference between the two. And to me, that was the issue with Bernie that I have with his story is if, if that whole function of her being the fiance is to, again, highlight this fixation he has on regulations, then to me, because it plays out throughout so strongly in the first, you know, two thirds of the film. And then when he gets there and they're rescuing the guys and they're like, we can't take anymore. You know, the boat can only hold so many. And then Bernie's got to make the decision. Like I'm going to go against the regulations. And I thought that's been built up so much as part of his character of I'm, I'm this guy who's the dutiful son. He's living in the shadow of his brothers. You know, it's Hey, the coast guard says you got to go out. They don't say you have to come back in. I'm, I'm this guy that, that does these things by the book that I live and die by this. And then he gets out there. And to me, that moment just didn't carry that weight of here's this guy having to make this crucial decision of I'm going to go against regulations. I'm going to do what's right. And to me, that should have been like this great pivotal moment for his character. And to me, it didn't come across that way. What about the scene later? Because I I felt the scene, I, I, I thought it was fine there, but I appreciated it more later when he was being told to, that he has to take these guys to that other boat that was out there, and he turns the radio off and says, we'll just go in. And that, for me, worked. That I, I agree. Yes, that did work. And, know, th- and that, is, that is kind of a direct, you know, showing us that he is now a guy who is going to not follow regulations and he's going to do what he thinks is the right thing. So Andy, are you saying that it did, that the scene that Steve was originally talking about didn't work for you when he actually says that's regulation, right? No, I I thought it worked fine. Okay. I I I didn't have a problem with that scene either. I I, I thought either. he he said something there about um I can't remember the line exactly, but it was that's where he says, you know, we're all going to go, we're all going to die or we're all going to make it back, you know, that moment there. And um for me that was kind of the point of his his transformation, he's making that shift, and then 
Um, the what I I mean I like both of the moments, but the stronger one for me was when he later turned off the radio. I I was uh, I, I think I was more moved by the transition right at the at the boat because it was the that was the do or die situation and uh, and now knowing that that line was actually more or less spoken by him the real guy I think that was uh, that that makes it even more uh, fascinating that sort of kind of he he's just kind of wakes up to the heroism. That that worked for me. What do you think of Craig Gillespie's uh, direction? What do we know of Craig Gillespie? He's got uh, nine credits to his name. Most recently, the uh, I don't think it did that well. Million Dollar Arm. I didn't see it. It did not do very well. Yeah, I don't I don't know what to make of it. But but in terms of the overall uh, uh, direction of this thing, Tommy, jump in. The biggest problem for me for the film and the way that I think it relates to the director, uh, it's partly the director and partly the score. Is that every moment was the biggest moment. And that became very numbing for me. That while the, the soundtrack was uh, pounding me, the score was pounding me into submission, every single time a wave was coming, they would do the Spielberg look off camera, and then someone else look off camera, and their eyes get wide, and then you see the wave. And that happens over and over and over again. What, as a director, what you do is you pick your biggest moments. And you build those. You don't have every single moment, every single stare. This actually goes back to when they're on land with the uh, with the fiance. Every stare, every glance, every moment felt like the biggest moment of the film over and over and over again. And I stopped caring at some point. I think you need to show restraint. I found a lot in the... Um in the the smaller four person boat as they're going out to the bar uh, you know we talk so much about the bar and we hear the bar and all these things and then they start to see the bar each of the four characters except i don't know that lives even looks up but they all see the bar and they see the waves and we spend time with each of them looking at their reactions to it uh whether it's fear determination whatnot uh, but there's never really sort of any and and how i don't know how to do this so it, it's maybe it's not a fair uh a fair criticism of of this moment but we spend a lot of time uh, understanding their emotion as they make their way to the bar as opposed to really uh, being a part of it with them i didn't really experience that until we get in that and i agree with you andy you mentioned earlier that that's a pretty captivating scene i like what they did with that how how they kind of ran through the process of getting in getting under the waves getting over you know as they needed to do that that i liked but as you're leading up to it i i kind of get a feeling you know i felt a lot like thomas talking about in that um everything felt so intense that there was no way for us to crescendo with them that's a much better way to say what I said in 15 minutes. <laughs> I I don't know. I think that pacing for me actually worked worked fairly well because you have this moment where there's the build up to the bar and and you see them waiting for the bar and of course we've heard a lot about the bar and the terror of the bar. Then there's this long pull out where you see these giant waves that are ahead of them. They crash through the first couple of waves, and then there's this sort of zen moment, right? Which I think is the first opportunity for us to get a real sense of um, Bernie's expertise in these waters in particular. Because everything sort of goes quiet. He kind of closes his eyes and opens them again, and now he's he's in it. And we are going through the journey of getting through the bar. And that sequence for me, it it made quite an impact. I, I think uh, um, I, I think that's the point where I felt like I, I know who this guy is. I loved it. My issue was I had no sense of where we were in that, because... 
It's like, okay, they've got the big waves. So I thought, okay, are they through the bar? Or are they not through the bar? Then they've got like where they're surfing, basically. Like they're hitting these waves on the, through the side and all of that. And then, then I'm getting disoriented because it seems like sometimes we're under the water with the boat. Sometimes we're under the water looking up at the boat as it's hitting the wave. So just where they were like in their progression through the bar, which is, is it getting through, across one big wave or is it making through six or seven? I didn't know. So I thought, how... Are they through the bar and now they're just in the storm? And then then they did get through and it calmed down a little bit. And I thought, okay, is the storm over? Is that just the bar? So for me, it was just disorienting in terms of where's our progression through this so that how do they know they've made it? How do I know when where it's like, okay, we've, we're past the difficult part. Now it's just we're navigating the storm. And for me, I didn't have, as JJ said, we didn't have that crescendo with them. And I can understand that because it is still a very high, you know, stress, you're out in the waves, there is no, you know, woohoo, we made it moment, because you've still got so much ahead of you. But for me, just visually, I didn't have the the context of where we were to really know what was coming next or where we were. Okay, so that seems to lead to a conversation around cinematography and, and camera placement. And I think that is a leading up to this, at least judging by our back channel conversation, that is a point of some contention uh, and the uh, around the mix of uh, camera and effects uh, and fake camera to tell this story. Pete, you talked about that shot that where they pull away from the boat and then bring us in reverse over the bar to show the waves. And that was a fine perspective, and that wasn't a problem. That was a, you know, it's a computer-generated aerial shot as you come back over it. And that was, I, I get that, and it actually worked in, in the context of, hey, we're going to enter the bar. Before that, shortly before that, I think maybe less than 10 minutes before that, there was a shot where they left what I believe was someplace around the Cape. I'll say maybe it was the Chatham pier or something and they're working their way from the and instead of showing the size of the waves which seemed to be the intent of the bar shot that we just discussed the the size of the waves versus the 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 smallness of the boat it it it, it appeared that the director was or the the cinematographer was attempting to show the distance with which you needed to travel to reach the bar but it wasn't defined before we had that aerial shot, what we were looking at, what we were looking for, whether we were looking for the Pendleton or whether we were looking for the tiny boat or whether we were looking for whatnot. So what we get instead is a computer-generated aerial leaving land through a blizzard, looking for a light, not knowing what it is, and trying to figure out, again, I believe it was meant to show distance, but trying to figure out why it's there. And that's the one shot that I really remember feeling that way. But uh, Steve just used the word disoriented. That's the kind of disoriented I felt a lot of times. And when it's when it was done in the context of, hey, we're going through the bar, we're riding the waves, we're in the waves, we're being tousled by the water, that made sense to me emotionally as an audience member. But there were other times when we start talking about mixing those computer-generated effects that I, the disorientation was was too much for me. So in something like uh, The Perfect Storm, which you mentioned earlier, does that sort of camera trickery work for you in that? Because there's a lot of that in that film as well. I'm it, just for, trying to get a sense of, of your opinion on that in general. For me, it's about visibility. So another another good example might be... Um, uh, 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 
pie, right? Where you're in the water and the water is moving you and whatnot. If you can see it, if you can see it as it's happening, it it gives you a sense of space. But it seemed like the the director cinematographer were trying to create a sense of space with these shots, these computer generated shots. But because of the nature of the story, they weren't good choices because it it, it fundamentally needed you to be disoriented. So that was the kind of disconnect that was difficult for me as a viewer. You know, I, I found I, I, the anchor for me, I said anchor in a boat movie, the anchor for me was the unusual shore radar that they kept coming back to, right? And, and it felt, at first, it felt a little bit like local TV weather people. Um, you know, it, it just felt a little bit staged, like they knew that this was going to be hard to track and that people might be disoriented. So we need to show you very clearly that what the shoreline looks like in high contrast green so that you can see where we are. And for me, when we got that great big CG pullout, uh, it it made sense because I felt like I could see the shoreline and and it lined up in my head with the shore radar that we had just seen a few moments before. You didn't think they, that they were pulling for Pendleton? What do you mean? You didn't think that that shot that you're describing right there was actually trying to show us the position of the Pendleton? No, I knew they were. I knew yeah, they but were. That, but that's not what they were showing. Sure they were they actually were. showing the small boat on its way to the to the bar. No, that's where the Pendleton was. See, our confusion is exactly my point. But I'm not confused. <laughs> I am. <laughs> I totally am. Guys, guys, I'll be confused enough for the both of you. <laughs> I got this. It's, uh, th- there was a bit of confusion, I think, for them, too, because this was a second uh, tanker the Fort Mercer uh, had pulled, ripped into, and all the other little boats were there. Uh, and then this, because we first see the blip on that shore radar before his boat had ever left. We, right. we he's still in the the station house uh, when we look at that shore radar and we see the other blip and and the coast guard shoreline and the or the Chatham coastline and so for me that that ended up just giving me an overlay of the of any of the larger context shots to be able to make better sense of it it also made more sense because that blip was really close to shore and when the you know his buddy that they weren't really friends uh, heard the horn. That suddenly made sense to me because that that gave me an uh, again a, a point of reference that that ship is really close to shore, uh, and yet it's in great danger. Yeah, and I can I, I can see the confusion that you guys had with with that shot. Um, I I think I'm kind of in the middle. I I agree that I kind of understood the layout pretty well as far as where you know when they pulled out where where it, the ships were. And the radar was helpful. I, I kind of got all that. At the same time, I did feel that the shot itself, and this is probably why there's some confusion. I, I felt that the shot itself wasn't designed as well. And this is why I brought up the the Perfect Storm reference, because I felt the way that the director of the Perfect Storm used some of those shots to, you know, if you recall, like there's a shot like you're on a boat. And the camera like pulls all the way up into the clouds, zips across the hurricane all the way and goes down into a different area. And you kind of get this perspective worldwide where these different boats are that are happening in all these. Yeah, exactly. exactly And, And you get a really good sense of these all these different ships in all these different storms that were coming together to create this perfect storm. And I I thought the orientation on that was just really spectacular. Um, here, I, I think that they could have used a few more uh, points to just orient things. Even though I understood it, I can totally understand why it would be disorienting. 
Uh, let's go back to the fake camera bit and the the use of the CG. Tommy, you haven't lobbed in on on this one in particular. Did that bug you? You're the. I mean, I I was imagining you while I was watching this, thinking, I'll bet Tommy thinks this is called uh, the finest hours, the battle of the five armies. <laughs> Um, are we talking about visual effects? Yeah. For the most part? Yeah, I uh, felt very strongly and unlike the person that I went with. So it might have been just I was in a rough mood or something. I did not think it looked well. I did not think it looked good. Uh, I never believed that it was actually snowing versus there being sort of just a snow filter effect being put over things. And a lot of the time I just sort of felt like people were on a set. And a lot of the times when on the half boat – when things were rocking around, I got the feeling of sort of looking at a darker version of a Star Trek set where people are sort of hanging on to a, a, a bar and then throwing themselves around to sort of simulate movement. Um, it didn't it just didn't look very good to me. It looked like it was sort of made for CGI cheap. You know, that's really interesting. And I, one of the back to the behind the scenes interviews with Casey Affleck, he talks about the fact that they they have this giant boat and it was on a giant gimbal in the cold in the under the water like they made a lot of that stuff apparently and it feels like i i bring that up only because i just got bent out of shape about the edge because they took this beautiful scenery of alberta and the the woods of alberta and they made it look terrible uh, and i wonder if that's a if that's a problem of of cinematography or lighting uh cinematography we know by the uh well-named javier aguirre sarobe oh mm-hmm. i did that nice. first time uh, and, and so I'm curious, uh, your thoughts on that. Did anybody else have, have that problem? I, I, I didn't, but I see Tommy's perspective. Uh, I didn't have that problem with it. No. Maybe I don't see Tommy's perspective. Maybe I'm with, <laughs> maybe I'm with JJ on this one. Well, it, it's interesting to me that they created those, um, those sets like that, because one of the things that I had an issue with the weather was that Every time that they needed uh, a couple lines of dialogue or a, a review of something that just happened, uh, the weather would get really calm, so that they could all mellow out and talk about you know the fact that a character had just passed. Let's start, how was the? Uh, what did you think of the 3D? I liked it. It was fake. It was fake 3D. But you made a, a specific comment to it. I hate 3D, but I liked it. There was a reaction shot with Miriam in the window where you could actually see the reflection layers there and that someone mentioned that it was fake 3d but the the entire end credits were all mastered in this 3d layer thing i don't know i it was the whole when i saw 3d things happening like the chains in the pendleton wrapping it it actually worked for me in a way that 3d never has before and i'm a huge hater on 3d so um Maybe the fact that it was realistic as opposed to something that was uh, science fiction or fantasy made it better for me. I don't know. I, I liked it. I was comfortable with it. Anybody else see it in 3D? No, I did. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed the 3D. I thought it was great. Me too. I, I noticed it. The scenes that I noticed it on were ironically not the the big storm scenes. You know, there there is a scene where, every, where she walks out of the uh, station house and it it focus pulls back from the door to the payphone. Or somebody right. walks out. He walks out of the he station house out. because she's calling him from the from the telephone operator, her station, and it the focus pulls back from the door to uh, to the phone, and the way the three D there. Uh, rendered the distance for me, I think worked really nicely. It was such a good use of just sort of that visual drama that I, I particularly liked. 
the focus pulling was was something that was actually a big part of the 3D there. When they walked out of the dance and uh, they're having the conversation with Miriam facing camera and uh, you know and Bernie slightly out of focus for a time, the 3D actually worked in a way. Again, exactly what you're saying, Pete, in a way that uh, really helped the depth. And uh, again, I, I I've always talked about hating 3D, but this was really good for me. It's interesting that you pull out the the scenes that you really like are the scenes that involve the most humans, uh, human kind of dramatic moments. Totally fair. Yeah. The world's most bare, boring marriage proposal. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I think that this question, I don't remember who actually who posted this, but it's this idea of what do we expect from this film and I, from this kind of movie. And maybe if you if you went in not knowing it was a Disney fair, uh, I, I, I think maybe that would be a challenge. But for me, I feel like I walked in knowing this was going to be just a hair shy of Michael Bay, most likely. And I think it the the actual uh, sort of on-screen experience was much less than Michael Bay in a really pleasing way for me. I just thought it was a great ride. Well, I think that's that's exactly it with, with this sort of... I mean, Disney is kind of... I don't want to say they've mastered these um, kind of, uh, you know, human uh, triumph stories, but they do a lot of them. And this this fits right into something like Eight Below, right? Where it's you know a guy who's got to go rescue his dogs, and it's it's the same sort of thing that Disney I think can do really well. And I I think when you're when you're going into this sort of film uh, to go watch it, or even to the people going in to make it, I think it just kind of fits into kind of a mold, and and maybe that can be one of the problems with that type of thing. I mean, they do the same thing with the the sports things like Million Dollar Arm. Um, it it just is it's a good triumph story for people to just go and enjoy and I, I think that that can be the challenge for a lot of people and I think it's why uh, probably uh, some of the people here aren't big fans of it because it does uh, sometimes feel kind of uh, a little overdone and uh, it I guess it just depends on how well you connect with it and if it's if that type of movie and, and going into that type of movie is something that will work for you. And if you're good, just kind of letting yourself get taken away by it. Andy, Steve, did you guys see it with with your kids? I, I'm assuming, JJ, you did not because you saw a very, very late show. Correct. Okay. So anybody see it with kids? I took uh, my kids, my whole family went. Um, my son, uh, you know, he's a trooper. He just kind of sits through stuff and doesn't get phased by it too much. My daughter doesn't know how to compartmentalize anything, was um, pretty traumatized, uh, so much so that after... Uh, after the death of Tiny, uh, my wife had to take her out of the theater, and that was oh, no. all she made it through. <laughs> yes. Ouch! She was she was she was racking with sobs. Oh, you're a terrible <laughs> father. That's horrible. <laughs> Dad, well, you just talked to him part... a few weeks ago, and now he's dead. Oh, no. The worst part was that you know she she looked up at me right before it happened, and she's just like. This oh. isn't going to end well. <laughs> no, it's. And I, I feel like the worst father now because she's just like. Are they all going to be okay? And I'm like, don't worry, honey. They'll all be fine. No, oh, you did it. And then he dies. Oh, oh, daughter, oh. your father, and I'll never lie. Everyone will live. Or I'm not your father. Oh. <laughs> Steve, so, did you see it with uh, with your kids? No, they're older. I, yeah, they're older, and uh, they had other things going on, so I I did not get to take them. I think they they may have enjoyed it, and I, you know. I've seen a lot of films like this, getting back to what Andy was talking about, this this type of film, and there's a lot of them that I really enjoy. Never Cry Wolf is one of my favorite films. 
I love that. And it's one of these where you're like, this is a nice, you know, what would, you know, except for some of this heightened drama and, and tension that's, you know, traumatizing Andy's daughter. This is typically like a family film because it's a good moral story about heroes and overcoming adversity and all of that. And this is something that I knew going in, you know, Disney, I'm, I knew it was going to be that type of film. But for me, it was really hard for me to root for our main character when I was more interested in rooting for Casey Affleck. And I saw him as a more, he had more obstacle, more, I don't know if it's, I want to say tangible obstacles, but he's got a crew that's rebelling against him and he's got all these things that are just falling apart around him. And to me, I could see him working the problems, sort of going back to the Martian of like, he's got these things, he's working the problems and it's very visual. For Bernie, to me, it was like all this internal stuff and I just didn't get that coming through as clearly as I wanted. But I I think there's a lot of people that will really enjoy this film. Um, I think... I have a few issues with it, but I think in general for the type of film it is, it's it's really enjoyable. And Pete, it's funny that you mentioned Michael Bay because as I was walking out of the theater, I walked past the poster for the, the Benghazi film and its tagline, I think, is a better tagline for this film. The Finest Hours tagline is we all live or we all die for 13 hours or 13 days or whatever. It's when everything went wrong, six men had the courage to do what was right. And to me, that's what this film should really it is it's these guys having the courage to do what's right that's what bernie's doing he has the courage to do what's right whether it's going against what everybody in town is telling him he should do like don't don't really go out past the bar pretend you got lost and come back in and that's not the right thing to do and he goes against the regulations of how many people can be on the boat because it's the right thing to do and there's those moments that are are sprinkled throughout it just didn't come together enough for me to have this emotional experience out of like, yes, it, it, it's okay to do what's right when people are telling you to do something different than that. And I had hoped for more. And to me, it was Chris Pine's Bernie was just this, he was really flat. To me, I thought like, this guy just came across as like, not bright of like, I just do what I'm told and I'm going to do this and I may be a talented, you know, captain of a boat and I can get through the storm but it was like I just didn't see the wheels turning inside his head whereas with Casey Affleck I could always see I got that he's thinking he's looking at these things how do I help these how do I get these guys out of here how do I help this crew stay alive how do we keep the water from overflowing the air in tank and shutting off the engine so that we lose power and we lose the boat and he was I could always see him actively doing stuff to me Bernie came off as more passive and and reactive, and yes, he's an instinctive person. But I didn't see the 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 wheels churning of like, okay, how am I going to do this? I've got to make a tough decision. I've got to do this. It's like even when he leaves and the phone's ringing, it's like I didn't get a sense of this is a difficult situation for me. It's like, well, I got to go do my duty, and I'm going to shut the door and leave. I think that's a great contrast, though, between Casey Affleck and Chris Pine's performance. For me, um, you know, Casey Affleck had the call to action. I mean, he he wasn't the leader from the beginning, even though he was chief of the boat, like chief engineer, I should say, of the boat. Um, he he had to be convinced because there was some upswell. Like people didn't like him, he had to be convinced by the large bald fellow that he needed to take some sort of an active role in this. And it was not until he he finally realized these guys are idiots and they're going to kill themselves 
themselves and I'm going to grab an axe and make sure that they can't kill themselves, that he actually accepts that role and takes that call to action. I think that was a really powerful sort of active, a moment of action for him that I thought he demonstrated beautifully on screen. Chris Pine is kind of the heroic contrast of that, which is uh, he's not brash. He's not, uh, he, he doesn't, I don't really get a sense that he knows uh, what to do to get these men home, like to rescue these men. He just knows that he is skilled enough to do whatever he can and capable enough to do whatever he can and just keeps moving forward. You know, he just he just keeps swimming. And I think that's 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 not a bad thing for me. It ended up working pretty well. That's the luck I was talking about earlier of like, I'm going to do this and hopefully it all works out. Where it's like we just sort of happen to find the boat, and then on the way back, it's like we just sort of happen to get over the the bar because the tide took us in because we shut off the engine and we let the tide go in. Like, was there a reason he made that decision? I don't know, but it seemed to work out. Good thing. It wasn't like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I think this is going to get us there. I didn't get insight into him. It was like, well, it's like instinct or something, and that's why to me it seemed like his story was was luck. You know, it's just like a good thing it worked out for us. I'm okay with this. It's, uh, I mean, there's a lot more um, pieces moving, I think, in the Casey Affleck story. And I think that's another reason that makes that that part of the story so compelling. I mean, they've just got a lot more things that they have to do and a lot more people to do it. Um, and I think that Bernie's story is, it is a smaller story. Um, and it's much more direct. And, uh, you know, we already kind of talked about the luck sort of stuff. But I, I think... Something that's interesting about the film is that it can get confusing when a story ends up having two characters who really kind of become change characters. And and we do have Bernie kind of, we've already talked about his change that he goes through, and and Ray uh, goes through a change as well. He kind of becomes the guy who has to lead the troops. Now, you could argue that he's kind of already there. It's just he hasn't been put into that role yet. And that great scene when he's sitting down and kind of tells them what they need to do. I think that was a fantastic moment for him. I, I, you know, it's, it, it can be tricky though, because they both are kind of, uh, you know, people who we want to root for and see them kind of make this transition over the course of the film. And in doing so, it, it does kind of internally for us as viewers kind of create this battle of like, who do I really want to be watching more? I think. Wow, I I did not walk away even with that. For me, I was really excited to to jump back to either one of them. I found them both really compelling guys, and I didn't find that sort of competition between which hero am I rooting for most. And and I was really gratified that last moment where uh, Ray uh, is is the second to the last guy off the rescue boat back at 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 the pier. Uh, I thought that was a really satisfying moment for me when he, he kind of hits him on the shoulder and, and climbs off the boat. No. Uh, and, and, and I say that Pete loving both of these characters. And I, and I'm just saying that I, it can be something that can, can create some issues for people. I, I'm trying to figure out why so many people right now. I'm t- when you say <laughs> right. people, you're talking about Steve. Yes. Okay. This is roundabout <laughs> me talking about Steve. No, but it's, it's, it's trying to look at why people are, um, find problems with some of this these sort of elements in the story. And I think that can be something. Now, for me, I, I didn't have that problem. I thought they both worked. And I agree with you. I really enjoyed that, all of the moments, really, between Bernie and Ray, um, when he, I, I, when he, uh, when Bernie makes the decision on the boat to turn the radio off and, and kind of do what he wants to do, you've got that moment where Ray is like, you know, we'll, we'll follow you, Captain, or whatever he says. There's, there's a lot of those great moments between the two of them that I think work really well. 
Okay, I think, I, and, and I've been really thinking about this. I think this is the best thing I've seen Casey Affleck do. I'm just oh, going to get that out there. I really whoa. do. And I adored the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. Uh, I thought that was fantastic. But this is this is definitely, I think this is my favorite role. I thought he was, he was as sort of grown up and uh, subdued that this sort of stoic role, I think, really works for him. And, and I, I thought that was... Really terrific. I thought their performances were both excellent. I, and I, even though Chris Pine, I, I hear what Steve is saying about Chris Pine coming out uh, seeming flat, but I feel like that's 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 different for him. And I feel like it was it, it was on purpose. I don't feel like he was doing that. What he was doing was determined, was stoic. It was it was purposeful, and and I bought into it. Tommy, you've been. I think you just hate this movie so much. You have nothing to say. I thought that Chris Pine, the way that he played it, uh, came <laughs> came off as. And I don't mean this as a throwaway joke or anything. I thought he made Bernie seem uh, like he was on the spectrum, like he had <laughs> like he had Aspergery things. He wasn't yes, meeting Tommy. people's yes. eyes. Thank he you wasn't, for having the courage to say that. I, I wasn't going to until I was cajoled. But yeah, I mean, just sort of this weird, steadfast. Nope, we gotta go. We gotta do it while not meeting anyone's eyes, even before the window in front of him blew out, so he had water in his eyes. He just. I don't know. I, I didn't, I never understood him and I didn't understand. Uh, he wasn't heroic to me. Casey Affleck, I thought was captivating. Uh, let's talk just briefly about uh, uh, Daniel Clough played by Eric Bana. Why does Eric Bana play that role? I don't know. It's such <laughs> a ridiculous role for role. him to do. Yeah. yeah. It came, it seemed to be suggested or somebody asked like, is he, is he even competent? You know, I mean, because somebody questioned that, and I thought there's been enough of the, you know, here's this community that lives here on the water, and he's transferred in from someplace else. And so at certain points, I'm thinking maybe he's making the wrong decision sending Bernie out, and everybody knows it because it's like, hello, we live here on the shore. We know how bad things get. I'm like, is is he really incompetent? Is he in a post that he shouldn't be in? But I, there was nothing to him. It was, it, he, just like had one line of like go out it's, uh, every time he like repeated himself like three times like Bernie didn't I tell you to get out there and you know get down there and do that with the fishermen and you need to get out there and it, that's all he did and then Miriam I'm gonna tell you to get out of here get out of here get out that's all he did he had three lines that he repeated throughout the film I don't know why he was that why it was Eric Bana and to me the character maybe that's the issue I have with Bernie is Clough didn't there, there was no dynamic between their relationship where I got a sense of conflict between, you know, authority figure and I don't know. It was really. There was something meh. about that character um, that I agree with. I, I, if anything felt underwritten, it was, it was that role. And it made me, uh, you know, at the end of the film, we get a nice little screen kind of giving us some information about Bernie and his crew and everything. It made me wish to that, that they would have continued that and given us a little bit more about, okay, what happened with Clough? What happened? And they didn't even do anything with, uh, with Ray or anyone from the boat. It was only about uh, Bernie and his team, really, was the, the bit at the end, and, and then Bernie and Miriam. It would have been nice to expand on that a little bit more, if not in the story, at least give us a little bit more information at the end so that we knew, okay, this is why all of that information was included about Clough. Because otherwise, I didn't think it was that necessary. Or, I mean, it didn't hold, I don't know, it just, it, there wasn't, it was in there, and like you said, they talk about it enough to make a point of it, but then they never come back to it. No, the film seems uncomfortable with that character because he seems like he's the cap, like 
the first villain, if we have a villain that's not God, uh, the first villain that we have is the unseen captain of Casey Affleck's boat who won't listen to Casey Affleck and keeps that at uh, too high of knots, which ultimately splits the boat. And it seems like uh, Eric Bana's character is going to become the next version of that. Someone that is over there in over their head, isn't listening to the people that really know what's going on. But then if he hadn't sent them out, those people wouldn't have been saved. And the film sort of seems to shy away from that. You know, it, this is that this is exactly my point. And I, I agree, I think, with all of you. I think it, Andy said it right in my head. It, it's just an underwritten part. If you go back to what this movie is as a Disney uh, triumph over, you know, grand obstacles film, uh, what we need in Clough is we need him to be the guy to buck the locals. We need him to be the guy who is able to stand up to the locals and say, no, Bernie, you're going to get out there and you're going to save these guys because we believe that Clough believes to his very core that Bernie is capable of doing this. But the problem is in their relationship, I don't think Bernie ever doubted that he could do this. And I think Banna didn't play it compellingly enough as that gruff leader that took on the locals in anything more than kind of an antagonistic way. It just it just didn't feel complete. Uh, it, just looking at Daniel Clough on Wikipedia, just looking uh, uh, looking him up, um, it's, uh, other than this, I mean, it says that uh, Warrant Officer Clough's expertise in small boat life-saving operations and confidence in his men's abilities resulted in Coast Guard Motor Lifeboat 36500 Cruise Rescue of 32 survivors. So, I mean, he had this expertise in this in small boat life-saving operations. That And then it sounds like he's done this a number of times, like he was involved in other situations that were similar to this. So he seems like a guy who... who wasn't in over his head. He the would way be that... one of the heroes, but the movie, his biggest scene is the fight fiance yelling at him and you feel that he's wrong. That's really interesting. It is. It's, it's, they, ju- they had the recipe for just the right character here. He exists. He's a real guy. And I think they failed on that, on and, that but point. Look at the dialogue too. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to bag on Eric Bana here, but on, honestly, like even in that scene, when he continually tells her to leave, there's a different way you could play that that would ha- make that character more, I don't know, authoritative. Is that what we're looking for here? Are we looking for him to take a stand at the fact that he's, you know, and he never played it that way. And whether or not that's him or, or, or the instructions he was given, we won't know. But there, there, you, you guys are definitely right to say that the part was underwritten. But when we know this about Daniel Clough in real life, when we know that and you look at what he had to work with, he it could have been played or depicted differently um, to to get that point across to us because you know that logic puzzle of the fact that they wouldn't have been saved if he hadn't sent them out anyway and yet there's still this sort of this sort of sinkhole of support underneath that character because he was the the, the antagonist that Tommy was de- de- describing it, they, that didn't resolve right in the film Clough the character doesn't have he's not a man of convictions. If he's there to defend his decisions to Miriam or to the people, you know, we would have that of to know he's got this confidence or faith in Bernie or just this is the this is what the Coast Guard does. We get that one line from Bernie about Coast Guard says you have to go out, doesn't they don't say you have to come back. Clough had you know, the character had that opportunity to to represent the Coast Guard and their ideals that Bernie is the embodiment of, and that's what makes him the hero of. He is the epitome of what the Coast Guard stands for. We don't have that. And Clough comes off as just 
we, we question his decision-making and he, he doesn't seem an authority figure. And maybe that, again, is the facts of what happened, but then we get into that balance of, am I faithful to what, what happens in what happened and what works best for the story and it seemed like if you're going to change a marriage to you know they're just fiancés for some piece of story why not be willing to boost a character's you know i don't know manliness his assertiveness to to give some something to that dynamic of what's going on on the shore well and that's the saddest part it doesn't even sound like they they would have needed to boost him it, 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 he was already boosted in real life. They they actually deflated him. There might be another way to look at it in that because we've talked about that the writers are embracing a lot of tropes and a lot of sort of standard things that you need for movies like this, that there were kind of a lack of villains other than, as I said, acts of God. And so kind of like on the half ship of Casey Affleck's half ship, uh, the character, I believe his name was Brown. He was the villain on that ship. He was the hothead that was yelling about, oh, we've got to get into the lifeboats. We got to get into the lifeboats. The lifeboat breaks. He's immediately shown up to be have been wrong. But instead of apologizing, he goes to Casey Affleck, you're the man now. Hope you don't get us all killed. Still just sort of being arbitrarily difficult in a conflict. And I wonder if they maybe, in the way that I didn't really believe Brown's adding conflict maybe they felt they needed to do that with eric banna's character i think it's possible but i just feel like there was enough of the of the sense of of underwritten hero in there for me that i didn't i didn't find him as the villain if anything he may have been interpreted by the villain as the as the by the town but i didn't get the feeling that he was interpreted by the villain or as the villain by the most important person in that relationship by chris pine uh, and again, maybe that's just a failure of their relationship on screen. Another element of, that I think is a little bit of the uh, failure of the story as it relates to that is that we have to remember he was actually in charge of two rescues happening at the same time. I know there was like the, the Boston crew and the other crew over at the other ship, but he had also sent that other boat out to go to the Mercer. And so, you know, on top of dealing with those guys, he was also dealing with this and and. I think that the other story and that other boat that goes out, that story does kind of get a little bit of a short shrift and, and we don't get enough of that until all of a sudden those guys are back because they couldn't even make it across the bar. But that's another issue with Clough is he tells them to go do one thing and they're like, no, no, we're going to do this other thing because it's yeah, it's it's, it's going to take longer, but it's safer. And as I recall, there was some back and forth and like Clough backed down and was like, okay, go do whatever, go do th- do it that way then. Yeah. It's it clearly is a story that they could have developed more. I think they got so focused on these other things. Too bad. That is too bad. Uh, other members of the team, uh, of either of the teams that stood out to you, anybody uh, that you particularly wanted to talk about? We had Ben Foster and Kyle Gallner. I just love Ben Foster so very, very much. Tell Why? Uh, he's just one of my favorites. It, it, and I don't know that this was a particularly uh, a deep role for him, but um, I pretty much like everything he does on screen. Uh, his was his work artificially grumpy, in your I, uh, view. Uh, well, you know, I don't know enough about the uh, source material. Uh, I assume they needed him to be that grumpy, so they pushed him that way. It was too artificial for me. Just having someone like a poison pill on the ship without ever really explaining why he was so Ben Foster. <laughs> he was just super unhappy and untrusting, just so he could at the very end say, "Okay, yes, you did a good job." 
Yeah, but it's I, I enjoyed the character though. I mean, maybe it's just the way that Ben Foster played it. I mean, he is he is easy to watch. I really enjoy just the way he plays uh, roles like this. And I, I mean, I had a good time watching him. I I enjoyed the character of Livesy. Oh, I did. Uh, well, oh, okay. I enjoyed Ben Foster. I didn't enjoy the character, so that's where I fall down. Yeah. <laughs> well, of course, we need to bring up Graham McTavish, um, and and I had not made this connection uh, until <laughs> I'll be honest, just now. <laughs> that he was Dwalin uh, in Dwalin. Dwalin? He, he likes it as Dwalin, yeah. Well, come on. <laughs> Dwalin. It's okay, listeners. I you need no to work on your... <laughs> come on. Are you messing with me right now? It's Dwalin. Dwalin and Balin. It's Dwalin and Balin. No. <laughs> come on. Who is... A, come on. We need a vote. We need a Rock, ruling paper, on scissors. this. Somebody has to know. Steve, come on. I, it's been so long I've since I've seen, seen those Hobbit movies. I don't I don't I've, remember. No. I know mean, Andy, Andy has rewatched them numerous you. times with his kids, so he's he's prop I'm going to def- defer to him because I know he's seen them probably more recently than I have. I'm going to have to give it 2 stars. I will be I will be doing some deep investigative research because I think Andy is punking me right now. Anyhow, the whole point of Dwaylen Sounds like a country singer. <laughs> You've just ruined all of those movies, and especially the last one, worse for me. You just made it worse. Uh, Graham McTavish was Dwalin, Dwalin, and in this movie, he is much Tolkien. taller. <laughs> he is. The man's a giant. Abraham Ben Ruby, friend of the show. He played Tiny Myers in this film. He was the uh, part-time cook and giant. And uh, he sadly didn't make it. But great cast. Right. My right. daughter will and, be traumatized forever now. Oh, gosh. I, don't even, yeah, <laughs> I feel terrible about that. But great cast. And what an essential uh, piece to the Disney puzzle here. I mean, uh, really perfect, perfect role and uh, liked everything he did there. The real story, the way he died in this film, he, is, uh, he falls into the water and is smashed against the boat, uh, the big boat. Um, apparently, the way the story actually happened... Uh, he slipped off of the ladder into the sea. The crew tries to pull him aboard, but he was too heavy. And so he slipped into the water and they lost their grip on him. He was swallowed by a wave. And then when he resurfaced, as Bernie was trying to navigate the boat toward him, the wave made the boat lose control, slamming into Tiny. So in fact, Bernie killed Tiny. Ah, Weber. Weber killed Tiny. Ah, Weber. That's why uh, I, I I can see why they changed that little little point of history Ouch. for the film. That would have yeah. been, I think, worse My for your daughter really in would. particular. Yes. <laughs> why did she mow have. him down? Why did he mow him down in the water, Daddy? Why did you make me watch this? <laughs> yeah. But his death still did have an appropriate amount of tragedy. We talked briefly about Holiday Granger. Uh, any other comments on her before we move along? English. I thought. I, what did I say? Aussie or New Zealander before? She. The, it. It only breaks down in that really important emotional scene for me. But you hear it. You hear it through there. I thought she was perfect for the period. That was. What, and I've already made that comment. But um, I never. Tommy said he didn't believe the film a lot of times. Um, as far as it being from the period, I did. I did believe it. I thought they did a great job of that. And and she in particular, she's a great heroine of the time to be cast in this period. I thought. 
And you must have an amazing ear. You must have an amazing ear for accents, or I'm just really bad at accents. Because I was like, gosh, these guys all did such a great job. Well, everybody else I thought was great, too. It's that, that one scene. It's like, oh, no, she's not American. And I it, totally it, didn't even catch that. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. It, and unfortunately, that was, again, like I said, the beginning of the end for me. Because I started to, you know, have looked behind the curtain at that point. But, um, yeah, I think if you ever see it again, I think you'll notice it. it it's, it's there. I had a lot of trouble with a lot of the accents, as you will hear in the flick chart theme. <laughs> <laughs> Looking forward to that. I thought she was delightful. Tommy, did I hear you say that she, the camera loves her? Well, the camera loves her, and clearly the DP, the director of photography, loves her. She was just bathed in light every single time she was there. I mean, her car light was insane. I don't know where that light was coming from, but she was just, she had, she really fit the bill of what these old-fashioned-y kind of characters should look like and were lit, and I like that. Absolutely agree. And it's interesting when you look at the original pictures of Miriam, the person, uh, it's pretty close. Uh, it's surprisingly close. That sort of like kind of pristine porcelain round face is, uh, it's uh, it's nearly uncanny, not quite. Um, I'll actually say regarding the casting that if, watching the credits, they actually did a really good job of casting a lot of people who really looked the part. Um, compared to who they were playing. I was really surprised by some of the side-by-sides of the actor with the real person. I was like, man, they they really nailed it on this one. Carter Burwell did the music. Too much for me. So manipulative, so huge. Way too huge. I, I like manipulative and huge music. Um, <laughs> but Carter Burwell's never been one of my favorites. I mean, he has done some scores that I really love. Uh, but this one, um, I mean, it was fine. It didn't, uh, it didn't blow me away or anything. But you know, it's, I, it's just kind of, I guess it's a Carter Burwell thing for me. I will say that I've been listening to the soundtrack today, uh, and it's, it, it's funny. It takes a long time to do anything, um, and and maybe that's part of the manipulation. But the first couple of tracks, like, there's nothing going on but like low hummy tones, and uh, and then suddenly. Boom! Something big happens, and and you're in it. But it it takes a really long time to do anything of interest, and and so I'm, um, I need to to get through it a little bit further. But it, it's it's not certainly not not a not a Hummer. It's not a Hummer. <laughs> a Hummer. Not a Hummer. The ADR in this film sometimes ADR or additional dialogue recording can be a sign of a lack of confidence in the finished project of what's going on because what it is is basically later recorded lines explaining things uh, that maybe aren't clear. And for this film, and this might be a big part of my problem, uh, the lights would go out and then they'd have someone off screen go, the lights went out. <laughs> and then <laughs> the, like the, you know, the engine would stop. We'd be like, Oh no, the engine, it stopped. Uh, Steve and I, I know from back channel, our favorite line is when, um, Miriam turns on her car lights on the pier when everyone else is there. They actually have someone, a townie, say, hey, turn on your lights, just like she did. (laughs) Who in the test audience was so confused at all of these times? It was really spoon-feedy and just felt nervous, like just needing to have people talk and talk and talk all the time. I was just wondering if anyone else had that experience. As the boat as the boat is coming into the dock, everybody's going, way to go, Bernie. Way to go, Bernie. Hey, Bernie, (laughs) you're great. And then as everyone gets off, everyone leaves Bernie behind. I know, he's alone. I know. So sad and shaking. Tommy, my other issue is not just the ADR on that line, but given the fact that 
this community lives and makes their living by the sea and they are you know sea folk and apparently they've never had a power outage before and it takes this girl that's afraid of the sea and whatever to actually think hey maybe i should turn on my headlights so they actually have light to come in because apparently nobody else that are these you know rough tumble people would have thought to like hey let's put on a light so that they can see us was really really casseroles for dead people (laughs) yes that just i i really thought really out of all these people all these fishermen that have lived there nobody thought hey let's turn on a generator let's get some lights so they can find where shore is because we all know the power's out like she did like she did if this podcast was the film someone would say steve just made a comment (laughs) (laughs) and if you didn't notice it or if you bothered you i should say it didn't bother you for me it was weirdly front and center Uh, you know what it was and this is one of the reasons I was asking about uh, if, who saw it with children, because I feel like this is one of those family-oriented films that needs to be understandable to a wide audience. And while you know, you and I might go to the film and not need the turn on the lights like she did. Those kinds of lines are pro forma in in these in the more sort of the, the younger kids films i mean that's like, the, like just, the apple dumpling gang yeah i mean those are kind the kinds of things that you see uh in in these films so i and it's also i think the the hyperbolic use of it is also kind of a disney thing too i yeah, think that, I, I bring that up jokingly but that's that's a, what you're saying makes sense pete it's there's a disney aspect to that that's important for the whole family yeah, and and so I saw it with my daughter, and she is a sophisticated moviegoer, I think, at this point. But, um, but it made me reflect on some of those elements that I think made more sense to me as as kind of watching it as a parent than I would have. And so I, I think that absolutely impacts my um, my overall impression of the film. I think I like it more because I'm cutting it more slack. Smart. Fair enough. I'm going to go have kids before Hail Caesar. Would you? I think that's <laughs> yeah. going to be an important element. I've been dragging the podcast. I apologize. <laughs> I think in our final comments, I'm really curious if any of the haters have been swayed uh, to uh, liking it even just a little bit more, uh, hearing our perspectives on it. Uh, let's start, Steve. I won't say you've swayed me. And I I, I still have my problems, but I, I, I agree that... There are a lot of people that are going to really enjoy this film, so I'm not discouraging anybody. I, there's there's issues that I personally have that I think are, are my issues, but I think this is a, a, a type of film that we need more of. Like I said, it's something you can take the whole family to. It's a good story. It has something you know good to say about individuals and what that ordinary people can be heroes in their own way. And there's a lot of good things going for it. There are some some problems. Uh, but overall, you know, I enjoyed parts of it. It's probably not something I'm going to see, you know, repeatedly. But for people that are interested, you know, definitely go see this. See it on the big screen. I saw it in Dolby Atmos. The sound was was great, and it sounds like JJ recommends the 3D. So yeah, definitely something I think that would benefit from the the big screen experience. But you know. It's, you know, typical January film. We're starting off sort of with a whimper. Nothing really solid that I think we're going to be reflecting on at the end of the year as one of our top 
films of the year, but something that I would encourage people to, to go see, probably better than a lot of other things that are that are hitting the screens now late in January. Hey, well, I think it's wrong to think of me as a hater uh, on this film. I think I have a lot of problems with it, but I totally understand its place, and I think the point that you made there at the end, Pete, is is really important. It's, it's, it's a great film uh, for... Uh, for families without sensitive daughters that might break down, <laughs> and, and for the fathers who take them there, and the fathers who take them there. No, uh, I think I think it definitely has its place, and I think you'll be surprised when you start hearing some of my flick chart uh, matchups w- when I'm actually choosing it in front of things because I, I I don't think it's a terrible film. I did feel manipulated in parts, and I did see a lot of the strings that were uh, that were uh, pulling sort of the story along. So that, so that was frustrating for me, and I and I think we end up talking about that kind of stuff a lot. But but in general, it. It was an enjoyable film to me, and and you know I talked about that roller coaster for me. It was a surprise. It was a it was a positive surprise. Uh, but but I would say if if you're a film person, like if if you like to see films like I do, it's probably not the right film for you to go alone on a Friday night at ten twenty p.m. You know, um, I if if I can get into a movie and I I enjoy the characters and I am interested in the story. I am totally fine with it manipulating me. I, I, I have no problem with that. I can just go right along for the ride and just really get into it. This was one of those films. I enjoyed the story. I enjoyed the characters. I had a great time. I really connected with Bernie. I just enjoyed his journey in this film. And I really connected with Ray as well. I, I, I thought they were both strong characters dealing with intense situations. I really enjoyed how they handled that. And then I also enjoyed Miriam. The the three of them, I think, led the three parts of the story really well and made for a film that was a, a great a great uh, story for me to just get involved with. I got really wrapped up in it, very, you know, moved at the end when, when everybody makes it back. It just, I really connected with it all the way through. I, it's one of those things. Yes, it's, it's, it is manipulative. It's, it has that kind of the, the simple elements to it. Uh, I don't want to say simple, but I guess the more, um, uh, things that you can easily connect to. And, uh, and I had no problem with it. I, I, I just I worked through all of that and I I was able to just skate on by and uh, come out the other side a uh, very happy man. And I would like to say that I tried to work through it and I drowned <laughs> during the process. Unfortunately uh, for me, just um, the idea of saying that something is a family film and something that we can in adults and children can enjoy the same. I'm not saying that you guys are necessarily saying that, but that doesn't need to coexist at all with such stock often cardboard characters, crazily expository dialogue, and such sort of ham-fisted, very on-the-nose emotions and manipulations. I think that it could be a little bit more nuanced and be perfect for 13 to 80. And I think that this film just played it as easily as possible. I had a big disconnect with it, and that's just me. I, uh, I I had a couple of points. First, I forgot to say my very favorite uh, piece of the film visually was, uh, I, I think, just cinematic experience was as the uh, water began to go into the air intake valve on the engine of the back of the ship. And we are close up on Casey Affleck and he's walking the boat and suddenly the lights go out and it gets dead quiet. And that experience of watching him walk through that just pitch black uh, 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 passageway I thought was really dramatically lovely and that's one of the no, things no music on that scene no yeah. music on that scene exactly and I think that's one of the reasons that scene works for me, so well for me is because I was 
so numbed by all the music leading up to it. Uh, the second is I, I also loved the the visuals around the Subma boat uh, when they when the boat was actually hitting the those coming down off those seventy foot waves and going under the water. That was a real highlight for me and the family. To the final point on this family film bit, and I totally hear your point, Tommy, and I think supporting your point. I really, really enjoyed the walk, and I think the walk fits the same um, mode for me. That uh, it is, uh, uh, these are films that the whole family can go and enjoy and see. And this one, I, I think, holds your hand a little bit more uh, than maybe you need to. Certainly more than the walk did, which I think it was a, uh, you know, a similar kind of adventure. Uh, nobody was dashed up against the side of the World Trade Center in that film and and plummeted to his death. And so maybe that's a plus one for the walk. In any case, I'm I'm with Andy on this film. Definitely, I I really enjoyed it. I had a f- great time with it, and it's absolutely a Friday night film night uh, film for candidate for my family as soon as it hits digital. So uh, I I think it's worth seeing. I think that's it at this point. Let's let the games begin. Uh, let's rank it. Men being men, everyone so honorable. Men saving men who have accents somewhat tolerable. Film board, it's time to use our special voting power. Let's rank the film, and this shall be our finest hour. Get over the bar, flick chart. <laughs> Very good. Very, very good. Very good. Tommy, you usually phone it in on movies you don't like. That was really good. My dog wrote that one. Oh. Good boy. Good boy. Head over to flickchart.com slash TNR Film Board. If you haven't signed up for an account, definitely do it. And uh, start with this one. Search for The Finest Hours and and, uh, start ranking. We'd love to see how your rankings line up with our rankings. TNR Film Board. Andy? All right. First up, The Finest Hours. Or the Dark Knight Rises. Dark Knight. Finest Hours. Oh, wow. That's so many, so many. That's the third one with Bane. The Bane. Dark Knight Rises. Oh. Steve? This is really difficult because they both have problems. And I, I haven't had a desire to see the Dark Knight Rises since I saw it in the theater. Because it just it irritated me so much, uh, but you know there was some. Uh, I, uh, I'm gonna go finest hours, actually, because I'm the, finest the, hours. Yeah. Wow. Okay, finest hours or World War Z. World War Z. World War Z. World War Z. The finest hours or Jurassic World. <laughs> the finest Tommy's hours. Favorite. Jurassic, Jurassic World. Jurassic, Jurassic World. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the only one. You were a standout on that. Order sixty six. <laughs> the the finest hours or side effects that hasn't popped up in a while. Side effects. Side effects. Side effects. I'd do the finest hours. I would also do finest hours. <laughs> the finest hours or the Hobbit: The Desolation of Smaug. <laughs> Smaug. Smaug. I would do. I would do the Hobbit. Oh, finest hours. Finest hours. So it's oh. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. Wow. Okay. No hobbits for me. What are you <laughs> Well, that, <laughs> that uh, leaves it at number 19, right between side effects and the hobbit, the desolation of Smaug. Right in the middle. Not too okay. bad. That feels pretty good. What does that do for our letterboxed ranking, everybody? Stars, please. Two. Who is two. that, JJ? Anybody two. else? Uh, <laughs> uh, I'll do two and a half. 
five. I'm at, I'm four for the type of movie it, for the type of movie it is. I I had such a great time, so I'm yeah t- definitely four. I think I'm uh, I think I'm a three and a half on this. One. All right, two point eight <laughs> average. <laughs> Perfect. Letterbox. We'd so like sad. to see more decimals. That's uh, right. We're not getting enough. Well, where? Uh, so we already mentioned a little bit what we're doing uh, next week. Where do we uh, go from here, Andy? Uh, next week we are uh, doing our, our Hail Caesar. Uh, it, the January February ended up back to back, so it's a little bit of a, a crazy film board period. But yeah, January film board and then fil- February film board. Hail Caesar! Before that, though, we've got our Speakeasy coming up this week, Pete, with uh, Casino Royale, talking to Matthew Gratzner. Uh, a visual effects supervisor. Yeah. And then, of course, our regular show, High Noon, the start of our uh, Movies in the Remake series. What a fun series that will be. Uh, and until then, gentlemen, thank you so much for gathering around to spoil this very film, The Finest Hours. Steve, always a pleasure. It was a pleasure spending this fine hour with you, gentlemen. Mm. Oh, J- you stole my line. <laughs> JJ. I'm still drying off and warming up. Mm. Tommy. It was a pleasure sharing this fine hour with you, gentlemen. I don't care. <laughs> Let's do this. <laughs> Andy, as ever. We'll talk to you soon. We did it! Here on the Film Board, we have covered quite a variety of great page-to-screen adaptations over the years, from superheroes like Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight Rises, based on stories like Nightfall and The Dark Knight Returns, to horror and sci-fi like Max Brooks's World War Z and Hiroshi Sakazuraka's All You Need Is Kill, which became one of our favorites, Edge of Tomorrow, with Tom Cruise and Emily Blunt. And who could forget Andy Weir's stranded astronaut adventure, The Martian, or Dave Eggers' tech thriller, The Circle? Supposedly so much better than the movie. We've also explored Stephen King epics like The Dark Tower and It, biopics like Damien Chazelle's First Man, and sweeping sagas like Denis Villeneuve's take on Frank Herbert's Dune. And don't forget Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon, based on David Grant's nonfiction book about the 1920s murders of the Osage Nation. I just finished the book, and it's fantastic. It's always fascinating to look at the source material, and we often do as the book lovers we are. For those of you out there who love to do the same, head to thenextreel.com slash originals to find all of our past episodes and dive deeper into these adapted stories. And it's not just stories. We've included things like the video games Uncharted and Detective Pikachu. That's right. Thenextreel.com slash originals is your one-stop shop for in-depth looks at the sources for cinematic adaptations that we have discussed. Every purchase you make supports the film board and The Next Reel's family of shows. So what are you waiting for? Head to thenextreel.com slash originals and get your next read today. (laughs) 